We are back this morning in this series, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, Book of Acts. If you haven't been with us the last two Sundays, this is the third Sunday, looking at what are the dynamics of the spiritual life? What are the, I don't know, the animating um, power and principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in our day? We're looking at the book of Acts, which of course is the, the, the blueprint The history of the church launched, as we saw even last Sunday, at the descent of the Spirit. Happened only one time in this dramatic way. We call it, happened on the day of Pentecost, if you weren't here last Sunday. But a very famous moment in the history of the church. You might say it was the birth of the church in a formal way. When after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the promise that he said to his disciples, wait here for the promise of the Spirit in the Spirit of God came down in dramatic fashion, and as we'll see, as we'll read here in a minute, uh, the 3,000 people in one day became followers of Jesus. The church was born. That's the point of this series, is to learn about what it means to be the church. What are the dynamics of the spiritual life? So we're back this morning, if you were here the last two weeks, in Acts chapter 2. In the heart of Acts chapter 2, we just looked at some of it last Sunday, is really a sermon that the Apostle Peter gives to the gathered multitude. Now, this, met, this supernatural event of Pentecost, again, if you weren't here last Sunday, the Spirit comes down, it's in dramatic fashion, it looks like tongues of fire, there's this violent wind or something like a violent wind, people began speaking, maybe as many as 120, certainly the apostles at the heart of it, they were speaking other languages to the people who had come in from all the different nations for this for this pilgrimage festival called Pentecost, they came in and they were hearing the wonders of God in their own languages. The wonders of God certainly being the gospel. Jesus had risen from the dead. What does this mean? That's what happened. So Peter's sermon now, that's in the middle of this chapter, actually is trying to interpret to all the other people who had gathered, thousands who, who were not a part of this miracle, not a part of this wild demonstration of the Spirit, wild, the miracles of speaking in different languages, but they noticed it, right? Think about it. I mean, any kind of event that happens that's dramatic, whether it's good or bad, you know, from a, from a horrible car accident to something wonderful and beautiful, right? Uh, uh, people gather and say, what's going on? And in this case, because there was naturally a reason for thousands of people Jewish people from all the different nations in the Roman Empire, we looked at this last Sunday, they were already there. And when this happened, it got people's attention. What does this mean? Ask the multitudes. So Peter now gives a sermon, not to the 120 who had this dramatic experience happen to them, they were certainly present, but to all the others who said, what's going on? Okay. It was Peter's first sermon It's the Bible's first sermon, and it not only interprets what happened, the whole point of the sermon is to say, let me tell you, take a breath, these people aren't drunk, that's what they said, some of the people, these people must be drunk, they've had too much wine to drink, so no, that's not what's going on, let me interpret what's happened here. But he not only interprets, the point of the sermon, what happens here, it also, this sermon, causes something to happen okay so it's not just a it's not just a bible lesson 
He, yes, he interprets what happened. Let me tell you what this means, theologically, biblically, what it means, what God is doing here. But something also, also his sermon also causes something to happen, okay? It's a life-transforming message. And that's what I want to look at this morning, this idea of the gospel message, a life-transforming message. Now, I want to read just a few verses. I, I, I'm not going to read the sermon because it's so long. It would take a month of Sundays to go through it. But I just want to read the last verse of the sermon, just one verse, and then a few verses about what happened after they heard the Bible's first sermon. Okay, Acts 2, 36 to 41, follow along as I read these words. Therefore, okay, it's the conclusion of a long sermon. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. That had just happened, okay, 50 days earlier. Whom you crucified, talking about, the, you know, in a sense, the, the Jewish nation, both Lord and Messiah. It's a pretty heavy statement. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, the phone's ringing, no, said to Peter and the other apostles, <laughs> brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. I mean, I don't have to interpret that, that, um, that saying, that, that, that phrase. What should we do? Can you imagine? It's almost like David and Nathan. You know, someone comes to you, you don't even realize it. You're the man. This horrible thing, it's your fault. And, you don't, and you, it kind of dawns on you, you didn't even know it that you had done this thing, and they go, oh my gosh, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What happened to them, this 120, can happen to you. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. And your children went from bad news to good news pretty fast. And for all who are far off, and for all whom our Lord, our, our, whom the Lord our God will call, with many other words. So we don't really get the whole sermon, right? With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, "Save yourselves." from this corrupt generation. You know, sometimes you think, oh, you know, the world's just gotten worse and worse. Listen, the world's always been a mess. Right? Okay, in a manner of speaking, right? As John was saying here a minute ago. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message, and God doesn't force himself on anybody, those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Okay? The first sermon. Now, this sermon, which again, I didn't read. We'll, we'll touch on a few things here. But I strongly encourage you to read it. Those of you who are reading through the book of Acts. Maybe you're doing this with your small group as some of us are. Okay. It's a master class, I would say to you, on giving a sermon. Of course, Peter's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He spent three years with Jesus. You know, makes sense. He has know something about what it means to give a sermon. It's a master class. I want you to think about this. What is a sermon? Well, what should a sermon be? If you think about it, a sermon, hopefully this one, anyone, is always a reframing. 
Now, what do I mean by a reframing, right? A reframing is, is looking, we're both looking at the same thing, whatever it is. It's an apple, it's an orange, it's a, it's a football, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a damaged automobile. It's, I mean, it's a thousand things. And you say, what does this mean? And you might, without knowing anything, you come and look at it and you go, well, this is what it means. It's bad, it's negative. And someone says, no, let me tell you something. Uh, it's not bad. We're tearing this house down and building a new one. That's, oh, it's a, that's a reframing. And all preaching is a re... Why is all preaching or all sermons a reframing? Because this book is 2,000 years old, okay? And I didn't walk the streets of Galilee. I didn't grow up in the ancient Near East. Either did you. So the living word of God is a reframing. So the purpose of any sermon at any time in the history of the church is to take an ancient text... Right? That's why some people, oh, the Bible's old, there's nothing to do with your life or my life. It's to take an ancient text and reframe it in a contempt. This is what it means to you. This is what it means to me. That's what Peter does. And that's what pastors that, uh, know, that know the what it means to give a sermon have been doing for, for thousands of years. It's a reframing of an ancient text into a modern um, context. What does this mean? Now, what you learn in Acts 2 if you read with us last Sunday, who were the audience to this sermon? It's always important to ask. It says, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So God knows what he's doing. He's putting this together. There are God-fearing Jews who came together for the festival of Pentecost. It was one of the pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish people. So they had come together, right? It's almost like saying, I'm going to do something. I'll do it at rush hour, at the train station is when I'm going to put my flyer. In other words, God knows what he's doing. He says, I'm going to do this miraculous event, but I'm not going to do it at midnight. You know, I'm going to do it at Pentecost when people have come in from all over the world. But who were those people, according to this text? They were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They didn't, they, these were not people that were paid to come. They didn't have to come. It's like you. Why are you here? There, there's thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Rochester. Um, pro probably an, a majority of them are not sitting in churches today. Why? Because you don't have to go to church. It's not a requirement to be a member of this community. You're here because you chose to be here. Okay? These God-fearing Jews came. But here's what's interesting about Peter's sermon. If they were God-fearing Jews, it means that they likely knew the Scriptures to a degree. That is the 39 books of the Old Testament. That was their Bible. They knew the Scriptures, but they did not see what the Scriptures proved very clearly. See, they knew them. They had them. They probably got together in their synagogues all over those nations that are mentioned. Every Sunday, they happened, and in those Scriptures is the Messiah and hundreds of prophecies, probably 300, that point to the outline of Jesus Christ. But he came, he died, he was rejected, and they didn't see it. And, Jesus, and what Peter does in this passage, we don't, again, this sermon, we're not reading the whole sermon, he takes just three important passages from their sacred scripture. Psalm 110 Psalm 116 in Joel chapter 2. And he says, let me show you what this means. He reframes them. And what he says in so many words, we just read it in the 36th verse, is this message is all about 
Jesus. Okay? Everything that God has been doing from the Garden of Eden through Abraham and the people of Israel through all of the prophets, everything he has been doing has one singular purpose and focus. It's all about Jesus. Just two verses in the middle of this long sermon. As, 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 as Peter is doing this reframing, he's saying, let me tell you what this means. Let me connect some dots for you that may be hard to hear, but hopefully ultimately are very good news. This man... Okay, I'm just diving in the middle of the sermon. Speaking of Jesus, okay. This man was handed over to you. Talking about the death of Jesus. By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, okay, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Oh my goodness, there's a mountain of truth and um, theology in that verse. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you could look at this and say this was, um, the, you know, wicked men came together because Jesus never really actually committed any crimes. Jesus actually did nothing but good things, raised the dead, fed the poor, you know, uh, healed people. He did all, why was this guy, of all people, why did he end up in this day being uh, ex- uh, um, experiencing capital punishment, which is what crucifixion was? Doesn't make any sense. And so one way to look at this is wicked men who didn't like what he was doing, who felt he was, um, you know, challenging the status quo, who was calling out some of the hypocrisy. These people conspired together, and we see this happening in the New Testament, right? The, these people are called out. Jesus himself even does it. He gets, Jesus, this guy went too far. He went a step too far. He spoke too many words. He, he, he's talked to the wrong people. He spoke truth to power. You went a little bit too far, and wicked men conspired and ended his life. We see this happening in history in other ways. That's one way to look at this. That's the way a lot of people saw this story. The people that were living there. And they said, you know, he had, I, I, I was at one of those sermons. They were pretty good. And, you know, uh, I think they overdid it. And, but, you know, maybe he was a trouble, uh, caused a lot of trouble. But God says, listen, Peter says, let me reframe it. Although this seemed like an awful travesty of justice, this man actually was handed over by God the Father. This was no travesty of justice in a sense. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't happenstance. This was God's deliberate plan and even the word foreknowledge. You know the word foreknowledge? You see it many times in the scriptures. It's the Greek word, a little Greek lesson here. Um, the underlying, a transliterated Greek is the word prognosis. Okay, when a doctor gives you a prognosis, okay, and good or bad, he's looking at an x-ray. He's not saying, you know, the, it might happen that you, you, you know, this or that might happen, okay? You're going to live, you're going to die, you're going to get sick. We've got to cut your leg off, whatever it is, okay? A prognosis is looking at an x-ray. Foreknowledge does not mean, in, the, in a theological term, that God is so smart he eventually knows what you or I are going to do. That's one way of looking at it. God, God kind of knows you're going to say yes, you're going to say no. Foreknowledge, he says it here, 
It's God's deliberate plan. It's God's set purpose. He's saying, listen, as crazy as this seems, as sad as this seems, as overwhelming as it seems that they, they, they trumped up these false charges and they crucified this very, very good man who spoke beautiful words and helped and healed many, many people. He says, take a breath. Yes, you even might have co-conspired. You crucified the Lord, said, verse 36. But take a breath because there's something bigger at work here. There's something bigger stronger than you, way beyond anything that you ever did, far beyond your motives or the collective motives of, of, the, of the wicked men. And God was using them, even in their evil motives, to accomplish his deliberate plan. There's a verse, note takers. Um, Revelation chapter 13. And there's this thing, just to amplify this point. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Some of you are familiar with this concept or not. It's, in the, it's, it's this book, right? Book of Revelation. And what the Lamb's Book of Life is, is supposedly this book. I don't know if it's a physical book, a literal book, so it talks about. And it has the names of all people from, Gen- from Adam to the last man or woman, and, and the, all the people of God. And they are supposedly in this book called the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name, if you're a Christian, it's in there. And it was in there before you were born. This is the, 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 this mystery that's being revealed. Now, when it says this in Revelation 13, there's this added phrase. So listen, all those who were written in the Lamb's Book of Life are, you know, are, are going to be with God. Now, it says, then it says, comma, the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Revelation 13, 8. Now, what does that, some of you have heard that, maybe not, you've heard that phrase. What does that phrase mean? I mean, it's not a historical statement. Jesus wasn't slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus wasn't slain before the Garden of Eden. Jesus wasn't slain before Abraham was called. Jesus wasn't slain before David was, no, Jesus came into the middle of history in a Manger in Bethlehem, we know this story, and he became a, a, a God-man, and he, he was slain in the middle of history. He wasn't slain before the foundations of the world. It's not a historical statement. It's a theological statement. He's saying, listen, I want you to know something. Before there, before there was ever a Genesis, before there was ever a Garden of Eden, before any of this happened, good, bad, and different, enemies, friends, before any of this happened, God had a deliberate plan. And that plan was he was going to start humanity. There would be a fall of sin. God would redeem humanity. He would be creating a people in his own way, in his own time. And the centerpiece of this story was the lamb, it's a metaphor, who would be who would be prepared for you and I to understand that language through a thousand years of animal sacrifice, he would send forth his son who would be, in a manner of speaking, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It was God's deliberate plan. Isn't that amazing? It's the whole point of the Bible. Tim Keller, if you know the name, wonderful uh, man of God, died recently this year. He gave a famous sermon. It was called Jesus, the True and Better. Jesus, the true and better. Listen just a few words from that sermon. He's trying to go back and say, let me, re- let me reframe the Bible for you and see Jesus as the main character of the whole thing. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden 
whose obedience is imputed to us. Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, his blood now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the world to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. I don't know if you know this, but it's believed that Mount Moriah, this little mount where Isaac was uh, sacrificed, almost sacrificed, by his father Abraham, is one and the same with Calvary. Okay? Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands at the gap between people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the innocent sufferer who then intercedes for his friends and saves them. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but left the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, as the gospel writers tell us, who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. Now listen, what this also means, wicked men did all this, but it was God's determined plan. What this means is that God is no more surprised, listen carefully, by what's going on in your life today then he is surprised by the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. So you and I might look at this as even the people of Israel did and said, wow, something horrible happened. Oh God, how did this happen? This is a mess. No, it's not a mess. It was God's determined plan. And God is no more surprised, if you believe this, what I'm saying here. No more surprised in what's going on in your life today than he was in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He has a deliberate plan for your life too. And if Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible, listen closely, if Jesus is the point of every part of the Bible, it means the Bible is not a handbook on how you need to live your life. Right? That's not what the Bible is. Does the Bible teach things about how I need to live my life? Does the Bible talk about marriage? Does the Bible talk about, oh, of course there's ethics in the Bible. But when you come to the Bible, here's my reframe, it's not a handbook on how to live your life. That's not what the Bible is. It's about what he did in his life and in his death. He's the point of every part of the Bible. And the resurrection life he now offers you through the promised Holy Spirit that's living within you. That's the point. Right? That's the point of the descent of the Spirit. God has completed his purposes in redeeming humanity. Now that sin has been conquered, it's been paid for, now he says, now I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit so that the resurrection life you saw in Jesus can come manifest in your life today. Okay? That's the point of the Bible and the dynamics of spiritual life. So, number one, 
What does this mean? It's a life-transforming message. What is it? It's all about Jesus. That's what the Bible's all about. Okay. Second, this message, come with the gospel message, cuts to the heart. Right? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Wow, brothers, what shall we do? So let me ask you this. Every time you read God's word, every time you listen to God's word, listen, every time you're under the teaching of God's word, however you receive it, you should be open to this kind of experience. Okay? This is what it means to be under, to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. Cut to the heart. The Bible's not a handbook. Right? It's cut to the heart. The Spirit of God, Jesus says, he's going to take everything that I said to you, he's going to make it known unto you. I was reading, right now I'm in, reading, like you, many in the Bible, I'm reading um, one of the passages I'm reading in the last two weeks, Second Samuel, story of David. And I was just reading, I think it's 2 Samuel 16, just 10 days ago. This is an example of this truth, cut to the heart. And as I'm listening to this, it's a, it's a passage in the story of David that doesn't get a lot of press because it's so unusual. But many of you may know this. Uh, David um, has this horrible, horrible experience, you know, in, near the you know, third or fourth quarter of his life when he commits murder and adultery. Oh, my goodness. I mean, after God's own heart. I mean, when he, he blew it, he blew it big. And, and as a result of that, his, his kingdom was taken from him. It, it, was, it was a horrible kind of experience. And it got so bad that his son, there was a coup. His son Absalom, all this was predicted in, in the judgment that God gave him. His son had a coup. He began to, uh, his son Absalom began to win the hearts of the people of Israel over. Eventually got some of the military behind him. And David wakes up one day and he says, you know what? Guys, we got to get out of here, out of, out of the capital. Because if we stay here any longer, my son's going to come and take us over. So the king of Israel, the great king David, him and his couple hundred friends and followers and, and people who stuck with him, they're leaving Israel. And it's the sad departure of leaving Israel. And as they're leaving, even the people that are around there, they're mourning. Like, oh my, what's happening? It's, just, it's dramatic. And as they get out of the city, there's this, the Bible has, for some reason, this takes up a whole chapter of the Bible almost. And David's walking out, and out comes this guy. His, he, gets, he has a name, Shimei. And Shimei is a member of Saul's household. That is, the previous king that David had, in a manner of speaking, replaced. And he, Saul's household, of course, never liked David because they lost power when he became God's choice. And this guy comes out. You've had these people in your life, I suppose. I have. In your worst moment. I mean, David is leaving Israel partly because of a coup, but also because it's the judgment of his sin. He was at the top of the mountain. He's at the bottom. And why is it the bottom? The lowest moment in his life has to be this moment, I think, or one of them. Shimei comes out on this hillside. And he, he says, you. And he starts throwing stones at David. The king of Israel. Throwing stones at David. And he says, you're a murderer, which he was. That's what got him in this trouble. He murdered a man's, a woman's husband just so he could have her for himself. Okay, some of you know the story. You're a murderer. You're a scoundrel. You deserve it. And David's um, sort of armor bearer says, because David still is the king. He says, say the word and I'll take off his head. You know what David says? 
was cut to the heart. He said, put your sword away because the Lord has sent him. See? He was cut to the heart. Now, when I'm listening to this, I actually was listening as I was driving, it was like a stone dropped into my heart. I, I, I felt like I needed to pull over <laughs> because God was cut. I was cut to the heart, not because I murdered anybody. <laughs> but I was reminded of this. All happened in, in a few nanoseconds. Jesus said, if you harbor hate-like feelings in your heart, it's the same thing as breaking the sixth commandment. And immediately, the Spirit of God said, you have hate, you have judgment for John Doe, you know it, and you need to do something about it. And, that, and by the way, that wasn't the first time that happened in the last month or two. I was cut to the heart. Okay? I was cut to the heart. The, listen, preachers forever are challenged. I am too. People say this to me all the time. Rob, you need to have more application in your, in your sermons. So like, it's kind of like what they say here. What shall we do? Oh, that's a very interesting say. Well, you've got to tell us what to do. Okay? That's a challenge. Well, I'll give you something today on the way out, I guess. But, but here's, one, here's the point. The only person who knows you well enough, not only to know what's going on in your life, how could I possibly know what's going on in your life, but also knows what you actually need is the Holy Spirit of God. He's the only person. I can guess but I certainly couldn't help you even if I knew. He is the only one. Jesus said, John 16, that he was sent by the Father and the Son to do this. Very clearly, John 16. To convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment of come. This is the point of the Holy Spirit being sent into your life. To convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. What does that mean? To tell you what's wrong, sin. To tell you what's right, and to tell you, judgment to come, that how you live your life matters. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit of God. And to give you the power to do it. Repentance. What should we do? Repent and be baptized. What is repentance? Central to the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's a change of mind about Jesus and his role in your life. It's a daily practice. Cut to the heart. Should be. And it reorients your life. It's what transforms you. Let me say this. You cannot experience the Christian life. You can't be a Christian part-time. That doesn't mean you're, you're going to die and go to hell. But I'm saying if you really want the promises of God, if you want the power of God that we're talking about, you can't do it part-time. That's why he says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's an allegiance thing. It's making what these people did here last Sunday, both services, they're saying, listen, not I want to be a Christian and I don't want to be a Buddhist. They're saying, I want to make Jesus Christ the center of my life. He is my true north. What he says I'm going to do or I'm going to with the best of my ability, he is now the leader of my life. Okay, and it's interesting, even in the, in the language of the words we read, there's almost a sequence, it seems, that you, it, it says... Be, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus and you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe one of the reasons some of us aren't experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in the way that we'd like to 
is because we've stopped short of making Jesus Christ the Lord of our Whether we've been actually water baptized or not, water baptism is just a sign. It's a moment that you need to come back to every day of your life and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Okay? I'm cut to the heart. If you'd say, you know, Rob, it's been a long time since I've been cut to the heart, I'd say, there's a problem in your relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. And this cut to the heart, let me say quickly, it's not a downer. It sounds like a downer. What a downer! Let me tell you something. David, it's not a downer. David's guilt of murder was holding him down. David's sin, the guilt that he carried around, was holding him down. My guilt's holding me down. Your guilt's holding you down. Repentance is the way to freedom. Okay? Cut to the heart is the beginning of a process that brings about freedom. Jesus Christ is the point of the message. The message is about Jesus. The message starts with being cut to the heart. Finally, the message is about a new person in your life. That's what I'm really talking about here. A relationship with the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words. This is how the sermon begins. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. Acts 2.14 Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. All this confusion. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. The Bible has humor in it, okay? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Let me reframe what you're seeing here. In the last days, God says, this is, a, this is a hundreds, hundreds year old prophecy. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, almost talking about slaves really. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy okay he's saying listen what you just saw this is that these people these tongues of fire this amazing unusual phenomenon it's it the last days are here the spirit has come and if you have eyes to see it he's come for you he's come for me and what's so interesting here is you see in these words i'm sure this is on purpose a complete reordering of life as it, as it was. These are, the, this, is a, this is a prophecy, but he's making a point. When he says, the, in the day, now this is hundreds of years earlier, he's talking about the future and the future is now. And Peter's saying that. He's saying, listen, I will pour out my spirit. You and I might gloss over this, but when it says sons and daughters, those wouldn't typically be the first persons you'd see. Sons and children were, 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 were uh, you know, uh, not seen or heard. I mean, children were unimportant people in the ancient world, okay? Sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, women, all the people that were part of the unimportant uh, uh, hierarchy are given prominence in this passage because the whole world is being reordered. In the, in, in the start of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. It's a complete reordering. It's a reframe. So, I want to invite you this morning. <laughs> We're done. To a renewed relationship with the person 
of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this question as a closing thought. When's the last time you addressed the Holy Spirit in your prayer life? Okay? In your prayer life. Well, isn't he just, he's sort of an, he, he's the, the coat that Jesus wears. He, no, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In the Spirit of God, uniquely, he's always been around. He's, he's eternal like the Father and the Son. But he came into prominence here to make the life of Jesus detonate in your life. Right? That's what we've been talking about. Of course you can pray to the Spirit. So a couple ways you can do that. And we're done. Things to think about. Number one. What, what does it mean to pray to the Holy Spirit? To know what to pray for. What a beautiful verse. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, Romans 8. When we don't know what to pray for. How many times have you had that happen? You're just quiet. The Spirit interprets your needs and aligns them with God's will, and he prays on your behalf. Do you spend time knowing that and doing that with God? Second, that you pray the Spirit would fill you. Okay, this isn't some dramatic, uh, showy thing. To fill is a metaphor for control. Be not drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18, but be filled with the Spirit. Yield your life to the Spirit and allow the Spirit of God to have influence and power. Do you pray for that? Do you, you should do that every single day. I should do that every single day. Number three, to bear fruit in your life. Fruit is a metaphor. It's it's talking about change. The fruits of the Spirit, many of you know that passage Galatians. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Money, cars. (laughs) No, of course not. That's love, joy, peace, goodness, temperance, faithfulness, long-suffering, self-control, self-control. That's the, do you pray for that? How do you, it's, it's, it, the Bible's not a handbook. The Bible is about Jesus and about the life he wants to give you and it becomes yours through the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, help me to have these kinds of Christ-like qualities. Do you pray about it? And to serve others. First Peter. The, spirit of, the spiritual gifts are an extension of the Holy Spirit. To some of you, you don't even, you're not even serving at all. I don't mean necessarily in the church. That's one place to serve. You, you're not even awake to the spiritual gifts. Not to mention, are you, you start praying about it. Spirit of God, show me. How have you made me? Okay? Amen? All right. Let us pray. God and Father, thank you for this morning. We love you. We thank you for the time we've had this morning. And I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room. Lord, awaken us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Open our minds, open our hearts, reframe, Lord, uh, do a reframing in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be quickened, to be awakened, to realize we have in the Word of God, oh my goodness, what an amazing resource. The power of God, the truth of God, the mind of God, the life of God expressed in Jesus can be ours. It's all about him and what he wants to release in our lives. Help us, Lord, I pray, to be open to hearing your words, 
to the, op- the, the, the operation made without hands, as Paul will say, the, the, where you do a work in us, cut to the heart and rebuilding us, releasing in us the power for a new life, Lord, that we might see visions and dream dreams, that we might, Lord, uh, speak and live in a way that would um, show the world who you are. Help us this morning to renew, restart, maybe for the first time, a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.